Um, today, you know, we, we uh, are not going to be in Second Thessalonians. We have kind of a standalone sermon today. So we have, uh, just due to uh, just the various schedules of the pastors and their vacations, it's had an effect on our rotation. And so uh, today I'm going to talk about something I love to talk about whenever I get to pick what I talk about. And we're going to talk about the church. And we're going to kind of look all over the Bible today. Uh, I don't have one main text that we're camping out in. So, so we're just we're gonna all over today, uh, a little different than uh, what we usually do. Uh, and probably for the next you know month or so, just, you know, I've got a vacation coming up. Brent's got a vacation coming up. David's got a vacation coming up. And so uh, we'll have a little bit of uh, kind of jankiness in the, in the rotation here for the next uh, little bit. So bear with us. Uh, on that, but today uh, we're going to talk about, like I said, the church. And I don't know if you've ever thought about um, what is the church, who is the church, uh, where is the church, those kinds of questions. Um, I want to take kind of a broad approach today and look at really the big picture of Scripture and how Scripture uh, defines the church. Again, kind of piggybacking on on what Rick said, like this is our family, right? And and God has put us in fellowship together, and that's no small thing. Uh, Matter of fact, the Bible tells us not not to forsake the gathering of the family, like get together with your family, right? And be involved in their lives and let them be involved in in your lives. And and the church and all of its flaws um, and and all of sometimes the weirdness that that, uh, can happen within the church church, it's God's gift to us. Uh, and hopefully we always look at the church as God's gift to us, right? And so, so I want to take just kind of a broad approach uh, today and look at just the, the big picture uh, of the church. When, when you think about, like, like some of you woke up this morning and you said, I'm going to go to church, right? As if church were a place that you go to. Um, sometimes when we have events, we say like it's at the church building, right? That the church maybe is, is a location, um, sometimes we think about the church as the people that make it all. And, and these things are all, all components that, that make up the church, right? But, but my goal uh, today is, is to uh, maybe give us a, a broader definition, a bigger definition than a place that we go or a group of people that we're involved with or a location or, or, or an activity in which we participate. Uh, the church is, is at least all of those things, but it's so much more than those things. And, and so that's my goal today is to show us that it is so much more uh, than all of those things. And in order to do that, we've got to back up into the Old Testament. We've got to back up to the very beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And you don't have to turn there. I'm, I'm going to give you just a little bit of kind of a narrative here for a few moments. Uh, and then uh, after I give you this narrative, I'm going to, I'm going to submit to you a, a definition of the church. And then we'll end out our time just unpacking this definition of what the church is. So if we go all the way back to the beginning, right, we, we know from our Bibles, from Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, that God created all things, right? And, and do you know how, how God created all things? We're told that he spoke into nothingness, and out of that nothingness at his word, that, that things came to be, right? Let there be, let there be, let there be. You and I don't have the ability to speak into nothingness and have something come out of it, but God does. God spoke into nothingness and, and spoke into existence, the sun, the moon, the stars, uh, the oceans, the plants, the animals, the bugs, the fish, all of it just spoke into nothingness and said, let there be, and it was. And then perhaps at the pinnacle of creation, he spoke into existence, again, speaking into nothingness, uh, our first parents, Adam and Eve, human beings, right? He spoke into the nothingness and said, let there be, uh, and there was. And not only that, but, but at the creation, at that point of creation, God looked upon all of it and said that it's very good. 
And the implication of that statement that's very good is that things for a time were perfect, exactly as God intended them to be. He created um, Adam and Eve and gave them everything that they needed for their sustenance. As a matter of fact, he gave them a command. You know what the command is that God gave them? He told them to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. And in front of them was everything that they needed for their life and for their sustenance, uh, that they would just continue uh, in relationship creation with their creator. Quickly, however, as, as we know, that this didn't last. That there came a point where uh, human beings, Adam and Eve, rebelled. The creation rebelled against its creator. Right? God had established them and given them everything that they needed. They were in relationship, perfect harmony, the creation of the creator, until the creation rebelled against the Creator, thereby bringing sin into the world. And we see that things went downhill really quickly after this happened. In Genesis chapter 4, uh, we see uh, the first mention in Scripture of fratricide, right? a brother killing a brother uh, over a small thing. We see by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6 uh, that God is so sorrowful over the sin of humankind, over the rebellion of the creation against the Creator, uh, that he brings a great flood and, and destroys the earth, save one family, Noah and his family. Not because Noah and his family were particularly great, not because they were righteous, not because they had done anything uh, to earn this salvation, but simply because God had mercy upon them. The Bible tells us in Genesis 6 that God was sorrowful that he created mankind. Not sorrowful in the sense that he made a mistake, God doesn't make mistakes, but that he was heartbroken over the rebellion and the sin that had come into the world. And things had gotten so much so that, that he decided that it was time to bring this flood and, and wipe out creation. And we see very quickly, even after the flood, even after Noah and his family emerged from the flood, that things just continued this downhill slide. Right, God started out by, by creating two people and calling them to relationship. He, he then saved a family, showed mercy to a family um, to, to have relationship with them. And then we fast forward to Genesis 12 and we're introduced to Abram, later to be known as Abraham. Um, and in a proclamation of good news, God tells Abram that he is going to make of him a great nation and that through him all of the families of the earth would be blessed. That's a pretty cool proclamation, right? If, if God came to you and said that about you, that would be exciting. Well, there are a couple things with Abraham. One, his wife was unable to have children. And then God quickly, at this proclamation, called him to leave his land and to go somewhere else. And two basic things that are really required of any nation is, is that you have people and that you have land, right? And God called Abraham away from his land and, and they couldn't reproduce, Yet God still makes this promise that he would make of him a great nation and through him all of the families of the earth would be blessed. Like Noah, God chose Abram not because of anything great about Abram, but because God simply uh, chose him uh, to, to fulfill this promise in him and through him, not on the part of any doing uh, of Abram. And so once again, God's speaking into existence what we would know to later become the nation of Israel. It didn't exist at this point. So this proclamation to Abraham, God spoke again into nothingness and said, let there be. And guess what happened? There was, right? The nation of Israel came into existence as time would go on. So a significant moment in biblical history is as God is now calling not just two people, not just a family, but God is speaking into existence a people that has yet to exist and saying, those people are mine. Right? They, they belong to me. 
Just like he spoke at creation into the nothingness and created something, God did this with the nation of Israel. And it was God's desire that the nation of Israel would be characterized uh, as a people that were collectively submitted to God's rule and God's authority while simultaneously enjoying his blessings upon them as a nation. Really, at the end of the day, a community of faith and worship. But you know the story. Just like Adam and Eve, just like Noah and his family, this downhill slide continued where the creation would continue to rebel uh, against its creator. Romans 1 tells us that this is the cosmic problem of sin, is, is that we, the creation, have rebelled against the creator. It was the problem that started with Adam and Eve, and it's a problem that you and I, as descendants of the first two people that God created, that we have all inherited. Right? So, so we say that we have this inherent sin nature because it has been passed down to us from the first two people that ever existed, and it's making its way through humanity. Right? We have all inherited this problem of sin where we as creation have rebelled against our creator and have decided to do things our own way not the way that the Creator uh, has made them to be. So as we think about Old Testament history, God time and time again throughout the Old Testament would send prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. And whatever your job is, you think it's tough, try being an Old Testament prophet. These guys walked around like their job was just to kind of deliver bad news for the most part <laughs> wherever they went um, you know, and, and, and speak of God's judgment that was coming, right? These guys had it rough, and God sent prophet after prophet in his mercy to us as human beings that we might pay attention to these spokespeople of God, um, but we didn't pay attention to them, right? Human um, Humanity didn't pay attention to the prophets. Israel would continue uh, to reject the Creator and, and, and subject themselves time and time again to God's judgment. But hopefully you see a trajectory here in this picture that I'm trying to paint. Right? God created the first two people and, and said, be in relationship with me. And they rebelled. And then God saved a family from judgment so that they would be in relationship with him and they rebelled. And then God spoke into existence a nation that didn't previously exist and said, you belong to me, submit to me and my rule and my, my benevolent authority. And they rebelled against him. Right? And then we get to the New Testament, and in God's ultimate act of kindness, His ultimate act of mercy, He sends His Son, right? God among us, God in the flesh, stepped into humanity, right? And, and called both Jew and Gentile to come to Him and to follow Him and to submit again to His rule and benevolent authority. He, he came so that He could redeem this inherent sin nature in humanity. And what did we do to Jesus? Right? We, we rejected Jesus. I say we like collectively humanity. We rejected Jesus. Right? We, we nailed him to a cross and then we killed him. And this, as we know, is God's plan unfolding. Yet when God stepped into human flesh, we rejected him. And all of this is God showing his desire to have a people that he calls his own, a people that he desires to have relationship, a people whom he could love, a people whom he could redeem from the bondage of sin and, and the ill effects of that rebellion. And so, so the picture thus far is, is that God has from the beginning been calling a rebellious people into relationship with him and going to great lengths 
to ensure that that relationship uh, could be restored that was broken when sin entered into the world. What a cool picture is that. And then, and then we get, after Jesus, after, after we rebelled and, and rejected Jesus, we come into the book of Acts, and we come particularly to Acts chapter 2, after Jesus had died and after he had ascended into heaven, and he tells his disciples, you need, you need to go wait, just chill out for a while, and, and like something's going to happen after a few days. Just hang out for a few days and, and wait. And they hung out for a few days, and they waited, and, and there was this day, called the day of Pentecost, where, where the Spirit came, the Holy Spirit came. And we look at a guy like Peter, who if you know, if you've read your gospel accounts, you know that Peter was, was not a real impressive guy. Um, Peter was, uh, you know, kind of a, a ready, shoot, aim kind of a guy. Um, kind of a doofus, really. Uh, didn't have these great moments at all. And in Acts chapter 2, at the descending of the Holy Spirit, Peter stands up in front of this crowd of people, thousands of people, and this guy who had been less than impressive up to this point, empowered by the Spirit of God, stood up and preached a sermon. You know what happened after Peter preached that sermon? We're told that thousands of people came to the Lord that day, just in an instant. They heard the proclamation of the gospel, and 3,000 people came to faith in a moment, and all of a sudden the church was born. The church that didn't previously exist at the proclamation of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ came into existence as people responded in faith to the message of the gospel. And we see as, as Acts chapter 2 comes to an end, we see that without any instruction really from anybody, the church was formed in, in a moment, and these people began sharing life together. Nobody, it doesn't seem like anybody had to tell them, okay, now, now, the, now there's a church, here's what you do. No, there was no instruction that we know of they just started sharing life together. People that had excess would give to those that didn't have enough. We're told that people would sell their possessions and their property and, and put it in, in the pool for everybody to, to share. Nobody considered their things to be their own. Right? That goes against our American West. Like, my things are mine. Right? Don't come for my things. In, in this moment in, in church history, nobody considered their things to be their own. Right? Family, just being family and helping each other and caring for one another. Beautiful picture. And we're told, and I don't think this is a prescription that's going to happen all of the time, but we're told in this moment in history that this newly formed church, this newly formed people of God, had favor both with God and with man. Now, we just got done going through First and Second Thessalonians, and we see that there's a church that formed there. Paul planted a church, and immediately that church didn't have favor with man at all, right? They were ill-favored by their, their town, by their city. So, so I don't think this happens all of the time. So this is a unique moment in church history where we see that at the, at the formation of the church, that they had favor. And outsiders, were told, were looking in to the church, and I don't know what's going on there, but I got to go check it out and see what it's, what it's about. And, and not only did these 3,000 people in a moment come to faith, but it says that daily, daily people were coming to faith. People were being added to their number day by day. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine us experiencing a day-by-day -day move of God where just every day, even if just one person a day coming to faith in our church, what would that look like? We'd run out of space pretty quickly, wouldn't we? This is a unique moment in, in church history. And so, so again, the trajectory that started with two people that went to a family, that went to a nation, all of these things not existing prior to God speaking them into existence, and now we see the church. 
coming into existence at the proclamation of the gospel. And so all of that um, to kind of get to um, this definition that I want to submit to you uh, for the church. And this has just been, for me, kind of a working definition that I've had for quite a while now. And there's lots of things we could say about the church, lots of ways that we could define the church. But for today, let's say this, that the church consists of people who are chosen by God, who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus and purposed with displaying and declaring the gospel to the whole world. The church consists of people chosen by God who have been purchased by the blood of Christ and purposed with displaying and declaring the gospel to the whole world. And I want to kind of unpack this definition now. So, so hopefully the picture has been painted and you can see that like the church is kind of a big deal. Not, not because like we're so awesome, we're, we're, the church is messy. Um, I don't know, you know all of your church background. I, I grew up in the church. I've been a part of the church since before I can remember. Right, My whole life I've been a part of the church. And I've seen some messy things. And I've seen lots of flaws. And have, have probably participated in hurting people and have been hurt by people in the church. Right? And, and it's messy. And, and, and I'm guessing that maybe for many of you that, that might be similar to your story, whether you've been in the church your whole life or not, that you, you probably... You know, the flaws of the church are on display all the time because we're a flawed people, right? Some of you um, have participated in hurting others, maybe intentionally, maybe not, but you've probably participated in it. Some of you have been hurt uh, and maybe have some deep wounds because of the flaws of the church. But we're told in the Bible that the gates of hell won't prevail over the church. We're told that the church is going to make it to the end. Even in all of its flaws, even in, in the weirdness that, that can happen, uh, the church is going to survive. And the church is going to make it to the end because Jesus cares for the church. And I think in order to understand how much Jesus cares for it, we have to understand that the church consists of the people that are chosen by God. Now, you've probably heard it said, if you've been in church for any amount of time, I've heard this over and over throughout the years, that, that if you were the only person that existed on this earth, Jesus would have died for you. That's a great statement because it gives me a lot of comfort. It kind of makes me feel like I'm a big deal if, if I were the only person on the earth that Jesus would have died for me. But, but I want to I push back on that statement a bit. Right? I'm not the only person in the world. You're not the only person in the world. Jesus didn't die just for me, and Jesus didn't die just for you. We're told that Christ died for the church, for all those throughout time and history that would belong to him, that would come to him and submit to him in faith. If I were the only person and Jesus died for me, that makes a lot of things about me, or you, or, or whoever, right? The church is not about me. The church is not about you. The church is collectively about about us as, as a family of God and what he's done for us, right? We, we live in, a, in this time of um, individualistic, you know, type of thinking where we tend to think things are all about us and, and the church is not about us. We're told in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27, that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is not individualistic language. This is the language of the collective. Christ died for the church. And the church isn't just the here and the now. The church isn't just this room. 
Right? We have time and history of the church that has come before us and the church that will be here uh, you know, should, should the Lord tarry long after we have left this earth. Right? So, so the church consists of not just us here and now. I don't know if you've studied church history very much. Church history is fascinating. There's been a church for 2,000 years before now. Right? A flawed church just like we're flawed now. Right? But the church has existed long before any of us were a part of it. And we're told that Christ loved the church so much that he gave himself up, not just for you and you and you and you, but he gave himself up for the church as a whole, the church collective. We're a part of that. We're a part of that church collective. And that one day, in accordance to Christ's desire, that he's going to present the church, the Son is going to present the church before the Father, holy and without blemish in all of its splendor and all of its glory and none of its flaws. What a great day that's going to be. Titus 2.14, it says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Again, collective language, not individual language. He gave himself for the church so that he might redeem the church. And if you've been a part of a church for any amount of time, you know like the church needs to be redeemed, right? Like we're, we're people that need to be redeemed, right? Even those of us that maybe have, have walked with Christ for a long time, like we need to be redeemed. We, are all, have, we all have the same need for redemption. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul, as he's writing this letter to the Corinthians, he writes it to the church of God that is in Corinth. And then he kind of gives us maybe his working definition of the church. says, <clears throat> to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Did you catch Paul's language again? Not individualistic, even though he's writing to one church, he's writing to a church in Corinth, he's reminding them that the church consists of those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's reminding the Corinthians that we're part of something bigger than our little family right here. We have a larger family. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus speaking to Peter uh, and saying that you, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So again, in all of its flaws, the church is here to stay. The church is here to survive. We hear people often say things that, something to the effect, or maybe you've seen this bumper sticker, you know, I love God, but, but his people not so much, right? And what those people are saying is that I love God, but I'm done with the church. And a lot of times what's behind that is, is hurt that has happened to people. There's people there are people who have been deeply wounded within the church. And that messes with our mind because we think that it shouldn't be. And it really shouldn't be. But it is because we're, we're a flawed people in need of redemption. It's a shameful thing, one pastor says, to be indifferent uh, towards the thing that Christ loves the most, the church. Right? We're, we're, again, the church is a gift from God to us, even in all of its flaws. And so my point in this is to say that the gospel isn't good news for a bunch of individuals. God didn't deliver his son to die so that individuals who were okay could be made a little bit better. 
that the gospel is good news for the church, collectively for all of those who respond in faith to the message. And Jesus died so that sinners could be redeemed, not so that decent people could be made a little bit better, but that sinners, rebels, could be redeemed and that right relationship could be restored to the relationship that, that we broke in our rebellion. So that a problem that we inherited from the first two people that has passed its way down throughout all of humanity so that that problem could be redeemed because we're not capable of redeeming that problem. We're not capable of fixing this problem that we inherited. We're stuck with it except for the intervention of Jesus Christ. And so the church is first and foremost a people that has been chosen by God. Right? We don't have time to get into it today, but you know, there, there's the doctrine of election that says that God has, has chosen us. Right? We, we don't come to God apart from His intervention, apart from Him opening up our eyes to see Him. We don't come to God apart from Him apart from Him giving us ears to hear the message of the gospel. We don't come to God apart from Him putting in us a faith that responds to this message that we hear. Right? Our salvation is, is all of God. And so the more biblical perspective would be not that Jesus necessarily died for me, although He did, but the more biblical perspective would be that, that Jesus died for us. Jesus died for the church. Jesus loved the church so much that he gave his life for the church. So the church is comprised of people who have been chosen by God and secondly, who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 20, when Paul is addressing the Ephesian elders, probably for the last time that he would see them, he reminds them that they've been given this duty, the pastors of the church of Ephesus, that their duty is to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Think about, think about your things. Think about some things that you own. Maybe you have some things that are valuable. Maybe you have something that you've inherited from a loved one that's passed on and it maybe has more of a sentimental value. But, but how, how do we value our things? Generally, we value our things by the cost, by what it took us to get those things. And maybe for me, like, the things that I have that I've paid the most money for are the things that I tend to value the most because of the cost of those things, right? Jesus purchased the church with his own blood. The purchase of the church came at a great cost for God. So loved the world, we're told in John 3.16, that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. The cost of the church is expensive. The cost of the church came at the life of Jesus Christ. It came at the, the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, so what kind of value do you think the church has to Jesus? It has tremendous value because of what it cost him to obtain the church. Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 to 23 speaks of Jesus and says that he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Wow. Jesus is over all. He 
controls all. Everything is for him. Everything is by him. He's the one that holds it all together. Like this is a huge statement from Paul about who Jesus is. And after all that, he's before all things and in him holds together. And if all of those things aren't enough, if it isn't enough that he is the image of the invisible God, if it's not enough that he's the firstborn of all creation, if it's not enough that he created all things, if it's not enough that he controls all things, that he rules all things, Paul says, and he's the head of the body, the church. He's a ruler of the universe, sovereign over all. Nothing that happens anywhere happens outside of his control, and he's the head of the church. That statement doesn't seem to fit with the rest of these statements, except that the church has value to him. So much so that in the middle of establishing that he controls and rules the universe, that, that he also controls and rules the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, you rebels, you who have inherited this sin nature, this rebellion from the first human beings that ever existed, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you rebels holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. There's a lot going on here. There's a lot we could say here. But, but understand the picture that, that Jesus values the church because of the great cost with which he purchased it, the cost of his own life, the cost of his blood. And even though he rules over the universe and all of creation, anything you can see and the things that you can't even begin to see, that he's also the head of the body, the church, and he is, has, and is, and will be redeeming rebellious people, sinful people, broken and flawed people, making them holy and reconciling them in their broken relationship to a holy God. Church consists of people chosen by God, purchased by the blood of Jesus. And if those things are true, which they are, I'm not questioning it, but logically, if those things are true, if we are a people who have been chosen by God and if we have been purchased by the blood of Christ as we have, then those two things lead to a purpose. And that purpose is to display and to declare this message, the gospel, to the whole world. If this message is true, if what I've said up to this point is true, what, what's stopping us from declaring that message to anybody and everybody that will listen? That's why we do what we do. That's why we gather here every week. It's why we do all of the things that we do throughout the week. The various Bible studies and home groups and the ministries that we have, the food distribution and the warming center and all of those things come under this purpose of displaying and declaring the gospel to the whole world. When I say whole world, like some people, like Glenn, who we're going to hear from tomorrow night, some, some people hop on a plane and they go across an ocean, right? And they, they participate in this whole world thing. Not, not all of us are going to hop on a plane and cross an ocean, but I would submit to you that all of us should cross the street. Right? Not everybody's going to cross an ocean, but, but everybody should cross the street. 
Like we're all called at least to that. John Piper famously says that, that there are the senders, there are the goers, and there are the disobedient. In other words, like we all participate in this purpose. We all participate in this mission in some way. Right? Even the most weak and feeble of us can participate in the mission. So if we truly are a people who has been chosen by God, if we truly are a people who has been purchased at the great cost of the blood of Christ, then we should also engage in this purpose of displaying and declaring the gospel to the whole world. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says this, says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. And you've heard me talk about this before. Those last two lines are a reference to the story of the prophet Hosea. I think one of the coolest gospel pictures in all of Scripture is the story of Hosea. God has this prophet, and he calls this prophet to marry a woman named Gomer, and he tells Hosea that she's going to be unfaithful to you over and over and over again, that you're, like your wife is going to be a prostitute. Marry her. And he marries her. And they have kids. And the first kid, God says, I want you to name this kid, not my people. And they have another kid, and God says, I want you to name this kid, no mercy. Like, you think your name's rough. Try growing up being no people, not my people, and no mercy. Difficult names, right? And as God had predicted, Hosea's wife, Gomer, was repeatedly unfaithful to him. And then God visits Hosea, and he tells him, I want you to go find your wife. And it's not that you don't know where she is. She's down at the local brothel, right? We knew that. He's like, go get her. And even though, even though she's your wife, you're married to her, that, that she rightfully belongs to you, you belong to each other, go down to the brothel, don't grab her by the hair and drag her home. He's like, pay the price. Get out your wallet and pay the, whatever the price is to buy her out, to redeem her from this life of prostitution. Pay it. Pay it and bring her home. And Hosea does that. And then God comes back and says, you, you know that kid that you had whose name is not my people? I want to give that kid a new name. I want to give that kid a name that says, my people. And that kid who was no mercy, I want to give that kid a new name. That kid's name is now Mercy. And this story, this story shows us the great length at which Christ went to purchase the church. Like Hosea is not the hero of this story. Hosea wasn't just this good dude that did some hard things. This is a picture for us of our own rebellion and our own unfaithfulness to God. Our own prostitution to God, right? That's like, we're all Gomer in this story. All of us. That's the point of the story. And even though we rightfully belong to Christ as he created us, God stepped into human flesh and came to the brothel of the earth and, and redeemed us, paid the price for us to buy us out of this life of unfaithfulness and reminds us that once you didn't belong to me, but now, now you do. Once you weren't under my mercy, now you're under my mercy. Like, what a cool gospel picture this is. And Peter reminds us again, because that's true, because the gospel is true, that that's our motivation for proclaiming the excellencies who, of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Proclaiming the excellencies of him who has purchased us and redeemed us from a life of unfaithfulness and has put in us now faithfulness. And again, if that's true, logically, that is now then our 
purpose. Have you ever thought about why, why is it that Christians exist on the earth? Does God leave us here when we come to faith so that we can lead into social issues and do good in the world? I hope that we're doing that. And as a church, we are, right? We're, we're doing, I think, our part. But the Bible doesn't tell us that's the purpose of the Christian to remain on earth. The purpose of the Christian to remain on earth is, is this, this purpose of displaying and declaring the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that it's God's plan, God's pre-designed plan not one of many, but the plan that those who have been redeemed, those who have been reconciled to God, those who are part of the church, would then spend their lives spreading this message of reconciliation to those who have yet to be reconciled and redeemed and those who have yet to be a part of the church. The church exists in a large part for those who have yet to be a part of it. Think about the clubs that you're, you know, your car club or you know, if you're in the animal clubs, the elks and the moose and those kinds of, whatever clubs that you belong to, most clubs exist for the people that are part of those clubs and those groups, right? The church exists at least in part for those who aren't a part of it yet. And we got to remember that. The church is not an affinity group. There are people in this room who I probably don't share affinity with, meaning like we don't have the same interests in life necessarily. That's not, that's not a bad thing. Right? It's a beautiful thing that God brings people together that might not otherwise come together. That's part of the beauty of the church. right? And we've been given this purpose to display and to declare the gospel throughout the whole world. Everybody at least across the street, some of you maybe hop out on a plane and cross in an ocean at some point, but everybody at least across the street. And I'll close with this. In Paul's letter, first letter to the Corinthians, Part of what he's trying to unpack towards the end of this letter is that, that they've got some theology that's kind of gone off the rails when it comes to the church service and spiritual gifts and what should be and some weirdness that he's trying to correct. And in the midst of trying to correct some of this weirdness and what a church service should look like and, and, and what spiritual gifts should be on display and, and what shouldn't, 1 Corinthians 14, 12, in the middle of that conversation, he says, so with yourself, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit... I grew up in a Pentecostal church, and, and I, like, I saw a lot of you know, things that were classified as manifestations of the Spirit. A lot of it was weird. Paul says, if you're eager to see a manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. If you're eager to see a manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. In the middle of this conversation about spiritual gifts and this and that, and what should and shouldn't be, he kind of brings them back back to center and says, like, the true manifestation of the Spirit in a church is that everybody that's a part of it would strive to build it up. That doesn't mean that we don't acknowledge the flaws and that we don't acknowledge hurts. It doesn't, doesn't mean that at all, right? We, we can point out flaws in a way that's meant to tear down, or we can point out flaws in a way that's meant to build up, right? And Paul reminds us that it's every bit a manifestation of the Spirit as any weird thing that you might see, that the, the people in the church would be about building up the church. There's lots of ways we can do that, and that's probably another conversation for another time, but there's lots of ways we can build up the church. And the first way is that we show up, right? A second way is that we're involved in one another's lives and that we pray for each other, we think about one another all the time. Another way is that together we can, you know, lean into some of the social issues here in, you know, where we live, right? We can, we can build up the church and call people to it through those efforts. 
right? We could go on and on about ways that we could do that, but, but my encouragement that I want to leave you with and a challenge that I want to leave you with is to consider how you might excel in building up the church. All of you have something to offer to the church. All of you. And, and God, I would submit to you, has, has wired you and given you gifts and abilities and talents and called you to be a part of this local church so that you would take those things, your gifts, your abilities, your talents, and that you would lean into and build up the church with those things. And so I would ask you to consider how you might excel in building up the church. Father, we're thankful for today. We're thankful for the church. We're thankful for uh, the people that you call your own. We're thankful that you uh, have chosen your people. We're thankful that you uh, keep your people. We're thankful for all that you have done for us. And I hope today that we're reminded of the powerful truth of the gospel that tells us that you did for us things that we could never do for ourselves, that you gave your life for us, that you purchased the church at great cost, and that you would help us um, collectively to strive to excel at building up the church, even in all of its flaws, that you would help us to put up with the flaws and work through the flaws, that you would help heal our wounds and our hurts that, that are very real that, that many of us have experienced. But more than that, Father, we pray that as uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ is on display in your church, that it would be something that outsiders would look at and say, I don't know what's going on there, but I need to go check it out and maybe even be a part of it. And God, that we would be uh, even bold enough and audacious enough to ask that you would uh, add to our number, even day by day, those who are being saved and coming to know you. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.